Well, I hope you're enjoying the music this morning, because I am. I mean, I'm just uh, really enjoying that, and I uh, appreciate you being here. I hope, like I say, I hope you're enjoying it. I don't know uh, how many of you know this, but uh, one of our religious leaders in our country, Franklin Graham, has called for a national day of prayer and fasting today. And so in light of that, I just want to encourage you to be a part of that. I know some of you right now are at home, you're eating a don donuts in your mouth right now, and you're going, what? And I know most people are at breakfast. You know, important thing, pray. Pray uh, for our country in this uh, juncture of our history. But anyway, we're in a new, new series today called In God We Trust. And uh, we're nor first of all, if you're, you are a, a guest here today, just know today's a little bit different. Normally, we either do series straight through the books of the Bible, a specific book of the Bible, or a specific passage, and then we relate that to our lives. And today, I'm going to do that in a different way as we kind of look at um, America, politics, and Christianity and sort of deal with that. And so, buckle up. Here we go. Uh, Proverbs 14:34 says this. This is what I want to start with. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Today what I want to do is answer three questions about Christianity and how that relates to politics in America. And so that, that's what we're going to do, and some of you are going to like it, and some of you are not going to like it, and we're glad you're all here, but, uh, but hang on, we'll get to it. Three questions about Christianity and politics in America. It's a who, what, how kind of a thing. First of all, who, because you hear all this stuff. Who founded America? How did, how did America start? What was going on there? Well, of course, the founding of America goes back to the colonists, the colonists who settled uh, in America, it came for different reasons. Some, although most of them were considered Christians, some really lived out their faith, some didn't. A lot of people came primarily for economic reasons. I mean, there was land in America, that's what they heard. So for them, that's, that's opportunity to own land, and so they came. But many more people came to America for religious freedom. Because in Europe and, and in other places, basically if the king was Catholic, you were Catholic. If the king was Anglican, you're Anglican. It's kind of how that went. And they were looking to practice their religion without state interference. And, and so we can see the difference in different colonies. I mean, the colony that started with the Mayflower coming over at Plymouth Rock and the colony that came before that and established Jamestown were all pretty much considered Christians, but Jamestown didn't so much live out their faith, and the pilgrims did. And because of that, we see all these differences. For example, the way they interacted with Native Americans. Jamestown came in, and they're at war immediately with Native Americans. The pilgrims came over, and even though they had a charter from the king that they could have this land, they said, well, that's not good enough. There are already people here. So they made treaties and purchased the land from Native Americans. That happened in Massachusetts. So there was just a different way people approached between people who lived out their faith and, and made the Bible as their guide, and they didn't. So that's, that's the, the, the establishment of the colonies. And then we come to the founding fathers. Today... It's popular for people to say that our founding fathers were deists and racists, but that really is not true. 
Um, we can look at a picture of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And here's my question. So this is the Declaration of Independence. This is before the Constitution Bill of Rights. How many, in, how many people in, in that picture, how many signers of the Declaration do you know? And when I ask that question, most people will say, well, Thomas Jefferson, because we remember he worded it, uh, although that was all through committee and everything, but he kind of put the final words to it. So yes, Thomas Jefferson. And then if you look at the picture real closely, there's another guy in there that looks recognizable to us, Ben Franklin, although he's holding his glasses in that picture in front of the, the doorway there. So there's Ben Franklin. Yeah, he was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. And then some people will come up with, well, Hancock, because right on the bottom of the Declaration, it's his big signature, so he had to be there. He's the guy sitting at the table. Right. What's weird is most people, Jefferson Franklin, Jefferson Franklin, the two people that we remember from the 56 signers of the Declaration, people, Declaration of Independence are the most irreligious two people in the room. Of course, you know Ben Franklin proclaimed himself as a deist. He was very supportive of Christianity, but said himself uh, he, that he was a deist. People say that Thomas Jefferson was a deist. He actually described himself as a Christian, uh, but there's some, some issues with that, and I won't get into all the details because I'm not going to go as long as I did last time. But anyway, 56 signers of the Declaration, here's what I'm telling you. As you look, 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence, the the far majority of those people were strong, practicing Christians who lived out their faith. For example, 29 of the 56, more than half, were graduates of seminary and Bible college. Seminary and Bible college. Of course, not all Christians go to seminary and Bible college, but 29 of those, people's, those people graduated, I need college, graduated from seminary or Bible college. And, uh, and then many of them were pastors. Uh, there was a, a, several of them that founded the American Bible uh, Association, American Bible Society, and that's the largest Bible society in the world. Uh, a lot of people, um, you know, led ministries. Some translated the Greek uh, Septuagint into English. I mean, it's just amazing how Christian those founders were. Now, even Franklin as a deist, while he was the governor of Pennsylvania, he came up with a plan to increase church attendance for Pennsylvania. Because even he as a deist, he was friendly toward Christianity. He realized, hey, our, 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 we're going to do a lot better in Pennsylvania if more people go to church. So that's kind of our, our founding fathers. John Hancock, by the way, while he was governor of Massachusetts, 22 different times as governor, called on his people of Massachusetts for, to pray and fast for example, once he did that just for people who don't know Christ in Massachusetts. We should all pray and fast for those of us in Massachusetts who don't know Christ, that they would hear and receive the gospel. That's John Hancock. And then people say, well, that seems at odds with what we, already hear, what we always hear about separation of church and state. Separation of church and state appears nowhere in our founding documents. It's not in the Declaration of Independence. It's not in our Constitution. It's not in our Bill of Rights. Nowhere is separation of church and state. The phrase comes from a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote 
to a group of Baptists called the Danbury Baptist Association. I believe it was Danbury, Connecticut. And he writes them a letter and he's explaining the First Amendment that says government will not infringe on the free exercise of religion. And he's basically saying, he's explaining to them that the government's intention is that there will not be an establishment of religion, although when they used the word religion back then, it was more like how we would refer to as denomination, because even though there were some Muslims and Jewish people there at the founding, the main thing he's talking about is the far majority are Christians, and he's saying the, that the United States government will not say this is our religion, will not mandate a certain denomination of Christianity like other states or other countries in Europe did. And so he's explaining that in the letter. Actually, when he's using that phrase, he's doing just the opposite of the way people do it today. But it wasn't until the middle of the 20th century that courts started citing this phrase and even be recognizing the letter, although they pulled it out of the context of the letter, which again is not a founding document, and they started using this. So that's where that came from, not in the Constitution, not what the founders intended at all. You can prove that. Now, the greatest moral issue during the founding of our country was slavery. That was a battle from day one in America. But I want to put this, because and, and America gets a bad rap on slavery, and of course slavery is evil, racism is evil. But let me put it into context. In the late 1700s, when we founded America, when, when our Founding Fathers founded America. There was slavery in every single country in the world. Every part of the world had slavery. Every country in the world had slavery. The first area, so no country didn't have slavery, but the first large area that outlined slavery was actually the New England colonies of the United States. Not the southern colonies, but the New England colonies of the United States. That was the first area where it was illegal to own slaves in America. Now, it's true that as we do research, that about a fourth of the founding fathers owned slaves. But what we forget is that about three-fourths of the founding fathers were people who were abolitionists, people who were freeing slaves, people who were speaking, preaching, and teaching, and working to end slavery. That's what's forgotten. For example, and, and we can look, and, and this can be proven. For example, in 1773, this is before, if you don't know your, your, your history, this is before we became a nation. In 1773, American colonies started passing anti-slavery laws because, uh, and they were doing that before any country in the world had outlawed slavery. In 1773, before we were a country, the New England colonies were passing anti-slavery laws. In 1774, King George in England vetoed all those laws saying, you're an English colony, slavery's legal in England, so you can't abolish it. But it was this action by King George in 1774 that convinced a lot of our founding fathers that we had to separate from England. That is part of the reason that led to the Revolutionary War and the founding of our country. Nobody talks about that anymore. 
Think about it this way. Once we became a nation, by 1804, all the New England states had outlawed slavery. No country in the world had outlawed slavery. But by 1804, just you know, 20, 30 years after our founding, all of the New England states, not all the states, southern states didn't do it, but all the New England states had banned, outlawed slavery, and blacks could vote and hold office, and did. Later, in 1833, almost 30 years later, after many American states had outlawed slavery, England banned slavery in 1833. They were the first country to abolish slavery. But when they did that, slavery had already been abolished in half of America. Now, America didn't abolish slavery until like 18, I think, 65, uh, 1865. And when America abolished slavery, they were the fourth country in the world to abolish slavery. America was the fourth country in the world to abolish slavery. Slavery was everywhere else. When's the last time you heard that? And remember, when that happened, half of America had already banned slavery before Britain. And by the way, why did it take us so long that we were just fourth out of 124 nations? Why were we just fourth? Well, because it took a civil war for us to ban slavery in the southern states, a war where over 600,000 Americans died. Why? To end slavery, mainly, I mean, it, was a, it was a war over states' rights, but specifically, it was states' rights to own slaves. That's what the Civil War was all about. But, let, but hear this. Before, long before the Civil War, Civil War is 1860s, in 1819, before slavery was outlawed in any country, except for some states in the northern colonies of America, the American Navy was sent, and they did this for decades, was sent to the coast of Africa to block the African slave trade. Britain did that too. This is before slavery is illegal in Britain. America and Britain have a blockade on Africa to prevent the African slave trade. Biggest moral issue in the founding of our country, but it was an issue. And so why do our citizens today look back on America as being more evil than other countries? They weren't. Slavery is evil. Racism is evil. But America was among the first areas and then the fourth country to abolish slavery. And, and it only took that long because we had to fight a civil war to do it. That's what I'm saying. And by, and by the way, it wasn't Europeans that brought slavery to, to America. We, we know this, right? Slavery was practiced everywhere in the world. The Native Americans practiced slavery. They enslaved each other often. If you know even the history of our own area here, Fremont had slaves, some well-known slaves, right here, right down there by the river where you cross it on State Street. There were slaves. Slavery was everywhere. 
And I'm not saying that to disparage American Indians. I'm saying they were just like everybody else in the world. That's what I'm saying. There was slavery in Africa. There was slavery in the Orient. Slavery was everywhere. So that's kind of who founded America and at the founding what the moral issues were. Now, what's, uh, as Christians, what is our responsibility to government? All right, we're Christians first, you know, so what's our responsibility to government? Well, we know as believers that God instituted gov- human government, that God instituted human government to reward good and to punish wrong. We see that in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that God instituted government to reward good, moral good, and to punish wrong, moral wrong. For example, in Romans 13, 4, it says, talking about government, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Government, in a Christian's mind, should reward good and punish wrong. Now, as Christians, we know our first allegiance is to God, not country. Our first allegiance is to God, not country, much less a political party. Our first allegiance is to God. But God expects from us that we would impact the world and that we would impact the world for good. For example, in Jesus' most famous sermon, Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, he says, talking about Christians, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now, a lot of preachers have, you've probably heard this before, that because we lose sight of it, we have refrigeration today, but before the days of refrigeration, which is most of our, our world's history, uh, the way to keep meat from spoiling was salt. So salt, as a food preservative, was extremely important because so, you could salt down meat, fish, whatever, and, and it would slow down the decay, slow down the rot, and that made a huge difference when people were just living hand to mouth. So salt, wars were fought over salt. But the point is, he's saying, We as Christians are like salt. We as Christians should interact with people, rub up against other people in a way that helps them see the right, in a way that acts as a preservative, in a way that upholds truth and justice and right and morality, that we should be that kind of an influence on the word around us. What he's saying is that if, if you live as a Christian according to the teachings of Jesus, regarding things like marriage and sexuality and money. And just when we live like that, we act as a preservative to the people around us. It slows down the decay and the rot in our world. That's what Jesus is telling us. And so what's our duty to government? Well, according to Jesus, we are here to influence. According to God, Human government is something that he instituted. So we as Americans have this privilege to vote. We should influence people, including we should vote because we should try to influence our country. What Jesus is saying, you take the church away and the world rots faster. 
All right, so that's who founded. That's what's our duty. And here's the last question. This is the how. How do we as Christians influence politics to be more right? Or the way I'll say it is, influence politics toward Jesus' moral teachings or influence politics toward a more biblical worldview. Well, we do that by voting because there are things in our country that should concern us. During the founding, the greatest moral issue was slavery, and they were fighting about that the whole time before we even became a nation. Today, that's not our greatest problem. Today, the greatest moral issue is abortion, and we don't hear hardly anything about that anymore. That is the greatest moral issue in America today. Now, disclaimer, we are not here to beat up on people who've had abortions. Many people here, many of us, have, have some of our sisters here in Christ have had abortions in their past. We are here to help people in crisis pregnancy. And that's why we don't just talk about it. We put our money where our mouth is, and that's why we support uh, organizations like Heartbeat Hope Medical. By the way, Heartbeat Hope Medical, most of the leaders in that organization are from Grace Community Church. And if you're a lady who's post-abortive and struggling, we have resources for you. As a matter of fact, one of our leaders here at Grace, Tony Brubaker, she is leading a, a group that's going to start soon about uh, for women, especially Christian women, I think, who are post-abortive and sort of how to, how to deal with that. So if you need that help, we're here to help you. We're here to come alongside of you. But abortion is not the answer. 61 million babies have been aborted since Roe v. Wade. In Sandusky County, that means about 43 last year. 43 last year. And it's an issue. And actually, that rate has dropped some, which is great. But 43 in our county alone in one year, it's too much. We should work to, to deal with that. And, you know, it's an issue. There are other moral issues, moral issues that about like the destruction of the family. God instituted the family. You know, several weeks ago, I talked about the organization Black Lives Matter and how right on their platform, as millions of dollars was pouring into their organization for America, right on their platform is that they want to do away with the nuclear family. They want to destroy the nuclear traditional family. They want, they want to get rid of that. You know, it, it's called Black Lives Matter and Black Lives Do Matter, but if, they, if their organization was really about black lives mattering, then they would be out in front of every Planned Parenthood clinic support, uh, you know, uh, what do you call that? You know, protesting against what's happening there. Planned Parenthood was started by an avowed racist. Look this up. Her name was Margaret Sanger. As a matter of fact, she wrote a letter, and it's not just this letter. We have the letter, but all kinds of things she said. But in December 10th, 1939, she writes a letter to Clarence Gamble and, quote, says this, quote, We do not want word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population, end quote. 
She, and she wasn't just looking at black people as needing to be exterminated. She's like, oh, we got to keep this secret. It was also Jewish people, Oriental people, Slavic people. I mean, she was a racist. She's the founder of Planned Parenthood. The reason for the founding of Planned Parenthood to abort babies is to get rid of the people that she didn't think, she called them the weeds in the garden. She was a racist. We have other attacks on the family. Transgenderism. Another thing that Black Lives Matter is supporting. Hey, we're not against people. We're not against somebody who's confused about their sexuality. If they want to get an operation and do this and do that, we're not saying they shouldn't have the right to do that. If they want to pretend that they're another sex, another gender, we're not saying they don't have the right to do that. What we're saying is don't make us pretend along with you that you're something that you're not. That's what we're saying. Don't force us to do that. And then the other thing is, if you have an operation, we probably don't want to pay for that. You know, pay for that yourself. I, I don't know if you caught it, but in a town hall meeting, you know, it was, uh, for the second debate that was canceled, uh, president and former vice president both had town halls. And then one of them is former vice presidents. I don't know if you caught it. I was watching this. And uh, a lady asked a question like they do, and her question was about her eight-year-old daughter who made a decision to become transgender. And then, you know, there was an answer to that on how supportive everybody should be like that. This kind of boggles the mind. We have a, one of our major political parties in America is encouraging, normalizing, um, supporting eight-year-olds to question their gender identity. Where do you think an eight-year-old girl gets that? Do you think she's been influenced by somebody? Probably. This should not be happening. Decisions you make when you're eight years old that can have a lifetime of consequences, we should all be very careful about that, right? That's why eight-year-olds don't vote or drive cars or, you know, anything else. As Americans, we should be concerned about the two major political platforms in our country, the platforms of the two major parties. We should, be, we should see everything through biblical truth, not the way we want it, not the way we think it should be, but the way we think it should be according to the way God would want it to be. And so as believers, with a responsibility to human government, we should vote for candidates whose platforms best represent a biblical worldview. And so our question should be when we vote is which policies and policies are synthesized into platforms, which platforms of the two major political parties best reflect a biblical worldview. So what I want to do today is do a political platform quiz. Are you ready? All right, some of you are ready and some of you are not ready, but that's okay. 
political platform quiz. So here's what I'm going to do. Without telling you which party, I'm just going to read, and, but these are the only two major parties. I'm going to read on four topics. I'm going to read, here's this platform of this party, and here's the platform of this party. This is their own wording. Here's this platform, here's this platform. And then you think in your mind, was it one, number one, or number two, and I actually have these in random order. Is it number one or number two? that best reflects a biblical worldview. Are you ready? All right. Political platform quiz number one. Re the topic is religious freedom. All right. From one platform, here's what it says. We value the right of America's religious leaders to preach and Americans to speak freely according to their faith. We believe the federal government, specifically the IRS, is constitutionally prohibited from policing, or censoring speech based on religious convictions or beliefs. We pledge to defend the religious beliefs and rights of conscience of all Americans and to safeguard religious institutions against government control. Okay, so that's one. Compare that to this. Here's the other platform, religious freedom. We celebrate America's history of religious pluralism and tolerance and recognize the countless acts of service of our faith communities, as well as the paramount importance of maintaining the separation of church and state enshrined in our Constitution. All right, in your mind, one or two, does the first one or the second one best uphold or reflect a biblical worldview? All right? In, in case you're wondering, because I'll tell you afterwards, the second one is the Democratic Party. The first one is the Republican Party. All right, next topic. We ready? Marriage and sexuality. Marriage and sexuality. So here's one platform. We will fight to enact the Equality Act. We will work to ensure LGBTQ plus people are not discriminated against when seeking to adopt or foster children, protect LGBTQ plus children from bullying and assault, and guarantee transgender students access to facilities based on their gender identity. We will ensure that all transgender and non-binary people can procure official government identification documents that accurately reflect their gender identity. Okay, that's the first one. Let's look at the second one. Marriage and family. I'm sorry, marriage and sexuality. Foremost among those institutions is the American family. It is the foundation of civil society, and the cornerstone of the family is natural marriage, the union of one man and one woman. We oppose the imposition of a social, cultural revolution upon the American people by wrongly defining sex discrimination, reshaping our entire society to fit the mold of an ideology alien to America's history and traditions. All right, which one, one or two, best reflects a biblical worldview? All right, second one was a Republican platform, the first one, Democratic platform. Okay, next topic, economy. Now, economy, to me, is not such a great moral issue, but it's the issue everybody talks about, it, usually, maybe not this year, and it's the issue that really affects everything else, so economy. Government cannot create prosperity, though government can limit or destroy it. Prosperity is the product of self-discipline, 
enterprise, saving and investment by individuals, but not as an end in itself. That's one platform. Here's the second one. We will forge a new social and economic contract with the American people, a contract that creates millions of new jobs and promotes shared prosperity. Now, that's the second one. Second one, that's the Democratic one. First one was Republican. But this shared prosperity, this is political speech for socialism and Marxism. And, and, and nobody's really arguing against that, um, which is amazing to me how far we've come in our country on this issue. How many of you have been to a socialist country? Okay. I know several of you have. I've been to several socialist countries. I've never seen a socialist country where there's any type of prosperity. The only people who do well in socialist countries, the only people in so, even first world social, socialist countries, the only people who do well even in first world socialist countries are politicians, and in the Soviet Union's case would be sort of this uh, underground organized criminal element. I mean, they do pretty well. I mean, you see them living in nice houses. Everybody else, they are way worse off than your average American. And I think what's happening is that a lot of this is being driven by our young people. I'm surprised at how many young people are willing to embrace socialism. And I, and I think I know why. It kind of makes sense. Because when you're young, you don't have anything, right? And so socialism is all about getting free stuff, free tuition, free health care. You know, everything's free. But when, you, when you've been around a little bit longer, you realize nothing's free. You know, if you get everything that you get free, someone has to pay for. And by the way, that'll end up being you. Because taxes will be raised in order to, to pay for that. When taxes are raised then we all have less money and we can afford less. And the less that we can afford, the more we need to turn to the government to have them provide it. So we're in this cycle is what happens in socialism. And by the way, I know some people say, no, I just want everybody to have everything they need. Totally get that. And that's a good thought. But even so young people wanting socialism, even Christians who want socialism, here's the thought. Hey, I want a bunch of free stuff, but it's not just about me. I want other people to have a bunch of free stuff because they're poor. They need free stuff. And so, but I want them to have it. And so I'm going to vote. I want to be generous, but it's really not you being generous. You're voting to make somebody else be generous. So get off the high horse. That's not such a moral issue. You're voting to force other people. And who do we force to do that? We always force somebody who's richer. You know, some, and of course, that's a sliding scale. We all think, yeah, if, you know, if we were richer, they should do that. I, I'm, I'm tight, but, you know, if, they, if I were richer, I would do this. That's kind of how people think. But then what happens? So then the idea is jack the taxes up on the richer, who already pay more taxes, but we're going to jack it up even higher and we're going to say they have to pay their fair share, even though it's more than we pay, but we do that. And then what happens? Rich people leave because they have the means to leave. And they go somewhere else and they take their businesses with them. 
And then they take their businesses to countries who will tax them less in order to get that business there and create jobs. And then what happens in America? Economically, we have less jobs and unemployment. This is not rocket science. I only have a minor in economics and I can figure this out. This is not a stretch. Why are we embracing socialism? Capitalism, it's like it's become a dirty word. Hear me. Capitalism has brought more people out of poverty all over the world than any other economic system. And it's not even close. Not even close. Why is capitalism so bad? The Bible says, and that's why everybody wants to come here, because of capitalism. Here's what the Bible says about the economy, economics. The Bible says this, personally. Take responsibility. If you're a Christian, the Bible's telling you, take responsibility, work, labor, provide for your family, and be generous to others. As a matter of fact, it says that Old Testament, New Testament. Here's Ephesians 4, 28 in the New Testament. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he'll have something to share with one who has need. And if you're part of grace, you're involved in doing that. Christians come together in church. We're generous. That's not to say you're not generous privately, but here at Grace, we support orphanages. We take care of refugees, especially children refugees. We do this. The refugees, you know, we have two orphanages that we constantly support, have for almost, I think, 10 years, a decade. But refugee children, we're doing this just about every month. And what about our community? What well, we provide food five days a week. Anytime somebody needs it, they come in and get food. That's what our Bumper crop was all about. We provide free counseling. We help people find jobs. We help people with transportation. We do this every week here at Grace. Why? Because Christians are generous. But that's not the most important issue. The most important issue in the last platform that I want to talk about is life. Life. Here, here's, here's what the two platforms say on life. Life, first platform. The constitutions guarantee that no one can be deprived of life, liberty, or property deliberately echoes the Declaration of Independence's proclamation that all are endowed by their creator with the inalienable right to life. Accordingly, we assert the sanctity of human life and affirm that the unborn child has a fundamental right to life which cannot be infringed. We support a human life amendment to the Constitution and legislation to make clear that the 14th Amendment's protections apply to children before birth. Next party's platform. We will appoint U.S. Supreme Court justices and federal judges who will respect and enforce foundational precedents, including Roe v. Wade. We believe every woman should be able to access high-quality reproductive health care services, including safe and legal abortion. We oppose and will fight to overturn federal and state laws that create barriers to a woman's reproductive health and rights. Okay, in your mind, first or second, 
which one best represents a biblical worldview. The first is from the Republican platform. The second is from the Democratic platform. Hey, this issue, this most important issue, this is why all of the Supreme Court nomination nastiness is happening in, in our country today. What Kavanaugh went through, what Barrett is sort of going through, but it's an election year, so they're, you know, it's a little different. And so all this is happening. Why? It's all about the right to life and it's, or the right to abortion. That's the whole thing going on. Because right now, the, the battle is, do you appoint a judge, which our current president is doing, that interprets the Constitution according to the original intent of the writers, or do you interpret the Constitution as you kind of look around society today and you can sort of make it say what you think is reflective of our culture today? That's why they talk about originalists. And so you have our current president nominating originalists, and then you have the other party, they're saying that they are committed a litmus test that they will not do that. That's the fight. And of course, only a president can nominate Supreme Court justices. And let me kind of wrap with this. It's about policies and actions, not personality. You know, I hear a lot of people I don't, like, I don't like this personality. I don't like this tweet. I don't like, I don't like the tweet either. And number one, I don't think we really know people's personalities that well. But here's what I'm saying. It'd be wonderful if we had a politician that had the best policies and actions, the best platform, and the best person. Wouldn't that be great if you had both? That would be great. But for me, personally, if my choice is between platforms and actions or personality, I'm voting platforms and actions every single time. Because actions have consequences. It means something. You know, there will be a day when we'll have personality and action in platforms. That's called the millennial kingdom, and it's coming, but it's not here yet. You know, everybody's got issues. Hey, we want what's best for our country. As a Christian, you have a duty to be salt and light to our country. That means, in our context, you should vote. You should study each political party's platform to determine which best reflects a biblical worldview, which is hopefully, hopefully that's your worldview. Pick the party that best reflects your, hopefully, biblical worldview. And in that way, 
will have policies that reward good, that punish wrong behavior, and that will benefit everyone in our country. I got to tell you, please understand me. Donald Trump's not the savior of America, and Joe Biden is not the savior of America. Jesus Christ is the savior of the world. And our first allegiance is to him, but he expects us as believers to influence the world around around us. And I got to tell you, I really think that this year, I mean, people say this all the time, it just seems like we, this election that's going to happen in nine days, it seems like it's to determine the soul of our country, whether we're staying the country, you know, that was intended, that we were intended to be through our founding fathers, or we just drift off and further and further away from God. but you need to do what God's called you to do. Right now, I'd like to, and that is be involved. Right now, I'd like to to pray for our country. And then I'm just gonna make a quick announcement. And then we have a closing song that's gonna happen. I know I'm going long, and so my apologies to the child workers, you know, who are just, you know, working. And I'm making it longer for them, so sorry about that. Father, we pray for our country, Lord, and we recognize that you've given us all a responsibility to be involved to make a difference, and to try to influence our country for good, your good, not not what we think is good, what you say is good, and away from evil. Father, we pray that you'd help us as Christians to keep our country from sliding further and further away from you and the principles that our country was founded on. Good principles, not perfect, but good principles our country was founded on. And God, we pray that you would heal our land, restore our nation, and Lord, most of all, make us a beacon of light for you. In Christ's name, amen.